This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. No one knows what her last day was like on that floating brothel, which the Chinese euphemistically called a flower boat. No one even knows for sure what they called her. Some scholars believe her name prior to marriage was Shi Yang, and that she had an alias, or maybe two. Shi Yang is as good a name as any, so that's what we're going to call her for now. Let's go back two centuries to Imperial China. The year was 1801, and a 26-year-old sex worker named Shi Yang was kissing her old life goodbye. It's unclear how long she spent selling sex on what was almost certainly a cramped, stinking brothel ship that floated from port to port on the South China Sea. This flower boat operation was a lower-class affair. She was poorly educated, as most women were in Imperial China. She couldn't read or write. And if stories about 18th-century brothels are true, she had likely experienced poverty and abuse. She wouldn't have known, at the time, what her new life would be like. But for Shi Yang, great things were in store. Within a few years, she would come to command the largest pirate confederation in history, consisting of six fearsome fleets, no fewer than 400 junks, and as many as 70,000 pirates doing her bidding. Her organization became such a menacing threat to imperial China that the Qing were eventually forced to legitimize their power in a desperate attempt to end their tenure in the South China Sea. The life story of Shi Yang, known to history by her married name, Cheng Yi Sao, which means the wife of Cheng Yi, would inspire countless novels and semi-fictionalized accounts of a Chinese pirate queen or dragon lady of the South China Sea. Indeed, her life was so sensational and pirates so marginalized that authors, even historians, have found it difficult to parse fact from fiction. But have no fear, we're not in the business of peddling fiction around here, and we're not starting now. We've done that work. So sit back, relax, and hear about the life of Cheng Yi Sao, the woman commander of the Pirate Confederacy in the South China Sea. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. It's a cold case like no other. In 1888, five women were brutally murdered in a London slum. Attacks so violent, the killer earned himself a nickname, Jack the Ripper. But everything you think you know about Jack and those women is wrong. On Bad Women, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers the real lives of Jack's victims, revealing discrimination that put them in Jack's path. Misogyny women still face today. The show challenges established theories about the murders, causing many supposed Ripper experts to see red. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. Shi Young, as she was most likely known before her first marriage, was born in 1775 possibly in a village near Xinhui, a city near the coast of the South China Sea. Alternatively, she may have belonged to the Tonka people, also called boat people or sea gypsies. The Tonka were an ethnic group who, during the Ming Dynasty, were prohibited from settling on land. As a result, they tended to live on junks that trolled the China coasts. If Shi Yang was a Tonka, she would have been born in a cramped boat off the coast of Guangdong province. The boat would have been home to her nuclear family only, 
Due to practical reasons, the Tonka did without extended lineages, ancestral property, or gentry. And these were really important things in, in imperial China. Thus, they were pariahs within larger Chinese society. Their lives were characterized by instability, mobility, and situational poverty. The details of Shi Yang's childhood and adolescence are a mystery to us, but they were almost certainly filled with hardship that is unimaginable to us. Port life in the late 18th century South China Sea was rough. How so? Let us set the scene. Our story finds us smack dab in the middle of the last imperial dynasty in China, the Qing. The Qing were foreign rulers, they were ethnically Manchu rather than Han Chinese, and they were keenly aware of the limitations of foreign authorities over such a massive empire. So the Qing had developed a very hands-off style of rule since they'd taken power in 1644. The Qing also directed their resources towards land-oriented defense. As a result, troops from the imperial army were scattered ineffectively around the coasts. This had some unfortunate consequences for the coastal areas and the people who lived in them. Pirates had always been active in the seas surrounding China's enormous landmass. Coastal villages and towns had been erecting barriers to pirate raids for centuries, but their establishment and repair relied on the generosity of the gentry since the emperor did not contribute to those efforts. In addition to zero aid in terms of infrastructure, the Qing also neglected the coasts in terms of personnel. Imperial ships were hardly ever in good repair, and imperial fleets only patrolled the seas twice per year at regular intervals. Pirates and other criminals could easily evade their efforts. In his study of coastal forts in 18th century Qing China, historian Robert J. Antony found that almost half of all coastal ports were manned by only two to five soldiers. About 75% of all military posts were manned by 10 or fewer troops. These poorly staffed posts were no match for the waves of pirates who raided coastal regions looking for provisions and valuables. The villages that fared the best against the pirate scourge were those who had the support of wealthy gentry who could finance the erection of physical barriers and the operation of local militias. Pirates ran roughshod over everyone else. And these weren't just the disorganized, independent buccaneers you see in most fictionalized movies about pirates. These were well-organized privateers sponsored by the Taesan dynasty in Vietnam. China's border with Vietnam is about 200 miles from Guangdong, and the Vietnamese landmass hems in the South China Sea to the northwest. Therefore, the story of the South China Sea has always been both a Chinese and Vietnamese story. Indeed, the rise in piracy in the South China Sea in the second half of the 18th century was inextricably linked to Sino-Vietnamese relations. During the entire 18th century, China was facing worsening demographic pressures. Its population doubled from 150 million to 300 million. The Chinese hinterlands began to fill up with this growing population, and for most of China, this population boom translated into economic stimulation. But for Guangdong province, the home of little Xiyang, this population boom was disastrous. The population of Guangdong increased more than those of other provinces, and a smaller percentage of the province was cultivatable land compared to the rest of China. These circumstances ignited fierce competition for resources in the province, driving its economic and political center out to the sea. This increase in sea trade attracted foreign ships, which in turn stimulated even more economic activity within the South China Sea. The land-bound Chinese looked to the sea for those economic opportunities. The unofficial headquarters of South China Sea piracy was the Sino-Vietnamese border town of Chiangping. Chinese pirates almost always had Vietnamese connections. Sino-Vietnamese trade over land and sea was heavily regulated and trade restrictions failed to evolve as South China Sea trade picked up. China's markets most wanted Vietnamese rice to feed their growing population, and Vietnam's markets most wanted Chinese iron, a resource of which they had very little. However, both commodities were contraband according to the inflexible Sino-Vietnamese trade regulations. Obviously, this state of affairs was untenable, so back channels quickly developed into a complex smuggling operation. 
smugglers used pirates to build their networks. With so few opportunities on land and official avenues of trade impeded by regulations, piracy flourished in the South China Sea in the second half of the 18th century. In a place and time where poverty and starvation were commonplace, piracy was a survival strategy, one that Xiang would eventually take advantage of. As historian Diane Murray puts it, Within the water world, struggling fishermen, together with down-and-outers, desperados, and malcontents, formed a pool of potential pirates from which at any moment an actual gang might emerge. So even though pirates were numerous in the South China Sea, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily organized. This all changed after 1790 due to the Taesong Rebellion in Vietnam. This rolling rebellion of sorts began around 1772, several years before Shi Yang's birth. By 1778, when Shi Yang was a toddler, you know, running around somewhere um, on or perhaps just off the coasts of Guangdong, the Taesan brothers had seized control of southern Vietnam and one declared himself emperor of Vietnam. The Qing aligned themselves with the old order, while Chinese dissidents, namely pirates and other outlaws, aligned themselves with the Taesan rebels. The Taesan made good use of their pirate allies, shaping them over time into ordered privateer fleets under the command of a Chinese fisherman-turned-commander, Chen Tianpao. Throughout the 1790s, the pirates participated in every one of Taizong's naval engagements. One particular Chinese pirate rose up the ranks and became one of the Taizong's best pirate leaders, Cheng Chi, and we'll get back to him soon. Under the aegis of the Taizong, Chinese pirates became accustomed to a command structure. They became a lean, mean raiding machine, funneling a percentage of their booty to the Taizong. Indeed, the Chinese pirates became so crucial to the Taizong cause that they permitted the conferral of military orders on their Chinese privateers. With the benefit of this state backing and their new, more effective organizational structure, piracy flourished around the South China Sea in a way that it never had before. The pirates recruited disaffected Chinese into their ranks and executed massive raiding operations along the coasts of Guangdong and Fukian provinces. The traditional localized methods of combating pirate raids were less effective against these well-organized, more numerous bands of pirates. Even those who were not well-organized were still incredibly dangerous. Diane Murray offers the following narrative as a typical month in the life of a pirate in the 1790s South China Seas. And this is, you know, paraphrased and simplified somewhat from how Murray actually has it in her text. So on September 15th, 1795, Chen Ayang visited his cousin Chen Achang in Chiangping. So remember, that's the Sino-Vietnamese border town that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived, Chen Acheng told his cousin about a recent adventure he'd had acting as a member of a pirate gang. He said he'd helped them raid a few junks at sea and enjoyed a portion of the booty. Chen Acheng invited Chen Yang to join him in the pirate's gang. Oh my god, I didn't realize that kind of rhymes. <laughs> it's like a song! <laughs> um... <laughs> Oh, I love it. Ayang agreed and joined Acheng and eight other men on the gang leader's boat. After a few more days of recruiting more members, the gang set sail, and in the deep waters of the South China Sea, the gang attacked the junk of a man named Ta. The gang pressured Ta to join them in their adventures, but he refused, so they imprisoned him and forced him to bail water. That same day, they raided another junk, imprisoned its captain, a man named Xia, Xia also refused to join the gang, so he was imprisoned and forced to boil rice for the crew. You're, you'll start to see a um, pattern. <laughs> On September 20th, the gang took another junk owned by a man named Lee. Achang brutally raped the man. Jeez. That same day, the gang raided yet another junk and imprisoned its owner, forcing him to boil tea for the crew. A few days later, the gang raided another junk. By this time, they were able to convince the junk's owner to join them. After this trip, they headed back home to Chiangping. On October 7th and 8th, they recruited five more pirates to their ranks and two more junks to their tiny fleet. On October 10th, they set sail again for a Vietnamese tour, capturing a rice boat in Hanoi Harbor, seizing its contents and raping its proprietress. Five days later, they seized another cargo of rice. 
On October 19th, they stole a cargo of pepper and imprisoned the junk's owner. By November 10th, they had returned to the waters of China, where they raided a moored boat that housed pigs and ducks, seizing all of the livestock. Five days after that, the gang's luck turned. A storm blew them into Mulan Harbor, where their junk crashed on the rocks and they were arrested by authorities. As you can see, these roving bands of pirates could materialize and then dematerialize quite quickly. They recruited volunteers, coerced volunteers, (laughs) quote unquote volunteers, and made use of forced labor. Still, there was a hierarchical structure that was scalable, as we'll soon see when Shi Yong returns to the story. The piracy problem became so bad around 1800 that provincial officials had to become involved. The governor general of Guangdong, his name was Bai Ling, attempted to relieve the desperate situation by hiring fishermen, sailors, and other ruffians to fight pirates on the province's behalf. Later, they'd have to restore an old system of social order that obligated the gentry to invest in provincial infrastructure and personnel. So whether Shi Yang lived in a Tonka junk or on land in a coastal village, she would have almost certainly experienced or witnessed violent pirate raids that enriched the pirates at the expense of her own community. Some Chinese, maybe even most Chinese, might have grown to loathe the pirates of the South China Sea. After all, their bellies may have been empty because of the rice they stole, or their families impoverished because of the goods or money they stole, or even their wives and daughters traumatized by the sexual violence they endured. And let's not forget that this was a very patriarchal society, so many Chinese men would have bitterly resented pirates if they deflowered their daughters, who were their most precious resource. Even though all these things may have happened to Shi Yong during her childhood and adolescence, she apparently did not resent pirates or piracy, at least not by 1801. Rather than resent pirates for their violence and thievery, Shi Yong must have seen something in them that ignited something within her. Perhaps they appealed to some innate sense of individualism within her. Or perhaps she, very pragmatically, acknowledged that their stars were on the rise. It's unclear. If Shi Yang was a Tonka, then she and her immediate family may have had ties to piracy all their lives. Much like casual prostitution helped women among the working poor make ends meet, casual piracy allowed some Tonka families to stave off poverty. Whatever the case, by 1801, Shi Yang was either a sex worker or possibly a sex worker turned procuress on a flower boat off the coast of Guangdong province. Sometime that year, Shi Yang arranged to marry Cheng Yi, a pirate commander from a long line of pirates in the family Cheng. The first Cheng to take up the mantle of piracy was Cheng Qian, a farmer's son from Fukian province. He did so in 1641. A few years later, the Qing overthrew the Ming, and Cheng Qian allied himself with the Ming loyalist movement. After two decades in the game, Cheng Qian became a semi-retired pirate, living on the Guangdong coast, who supported himself with fishing and woodcutting. Though his days of banditry were over, Cheng Qian did not forsake his spirit of opportunism. He demanded fees of passage from merchant junks that entered the bay, and apparently had the muscle to enforce the order. Cheng Qian's descendants went into the family business, joining pirate gangs along the coast of Guangdong. By the 1720s, two of Qian's grandsons, Lian Fu and Lian Cheng, had become pirate leaders. Lian Cheng even established a secret headquarters at the eastern end of Hong Kong, which were disguised as a sea goddess temple. Lian Fu set up his home base 15 miles west of Hong Kong. Lian Fu sired seven sons, thereby ensuring his family's dominance over Guangdong piracy for decades to come. The last of Lian Fu's sons, Cheng Yaohuang, better known by his nickname of Cheng Chi or Cheng Seven, was the very pirate leader who rose up the ranks under the sponsorship of Tae Song. From 1788 to 1801, Chang Chi served both his Taesan masters and built his own pirate empire. He, and by extension, the Taesan, suffered a humiliating defeat in 1801 at Kui Non. Cheng Chi fled back to Guangdong and took up the petty piracy of his youth until in 1802 he was summoned by the Taesan court to return to Vietnam. The Taesan wanted him to, one, recover their lost Vietnamese territory, and two, defend their stronghold in Hanoi. 
He sailed the fleet of 200 junks, but lost both battles. From there, Cheng Chi fled to Chiangping, that Sino-Vietnamese border town, where he was killed in an attack. After Cheng Chi's death, his cousin, Cheng Yi, resumed leadership of their pirate empire. Cheng Yi was the oldest of seven sons born to a Guangdong temple builder. He was five years younger than Cheng Chi, but his career had a similar trajectory. Like Cheng Chi, Cheng Yi also fought for the Taesan in Vietnam and returned to China in 1801. It was upon this return to Guangdong that Cheng Yi married the heroine of our story, Shi Yang. After their marriage, Shi Yang became known only as Cheng Yi Sao, or Cheng Yi's wife. So we'll call her that from now on. Just to make it a little extra confusing. Extra complicated. <laughs> um, by all accounts, Cheng Yi and Cheng Yi Sao were a formidable pair. It's unclear what Cheng Yi Sao's role was in their relationship or in the pirate empire her husband had inherited in these early years. At the very least, and this is being extremely conservative about her involvement, she was a keen observer and took very good notes during her marriage to Cheng Yi. What's more likely is that she was an active participant in Cheng Yi's command. During their tenure, the Taizan were officially defeated, um, an event that could have thrown the entire operation into disarray, right? But the Chang skillfully filled that power vacuum and strengthened their pirate empire with the help of Wu Shi Er. The Changs and Wu, along with a few other associates, would come to form the South China Sea's first pirate confederation. Wu had also fought for the Taesan at Hanoi, having allied himself with Chang Chi during those years. After Cheng Chi's death, Wu maintained ties with the family, especially Cheng Yi. In addition to his alliance with Cheng Yi, Wu also commanded a fleet along the coast of eastern Guangdong, near Fujian province. Cheng Yi and his wife learned a lot from Wu's organization, which was so large that it required written records, trained accountants, and political strategists. He had trusted supervisors who managed his silver, rice, and gunpowder allocations, and one that managed his salt junks. Wu's right-hand man was Huang Ho, a highly educated, disgraced ex-civil servant. Huang was Wu's counselor, strategist, and spy. He kept Wu's blackmail book and published posters composed to terrify villagers into giving in to Wu's demands. Wu netted several thousand tiles of silver per year and kept the villagers' resentments at bay by paying fair prices for their goods for sale. As you can see, Wu resembled less a pirate and more a modern mafioso, making his money through racketeering, large-scale heists, and blackmail rather than petty piracy. Wu commanded the Blue Flag Fleet. Several other pirate fleets were drawn into Chang Yi's organization. The leaders of the Yellow Flag Fleet and the White Flag Fleet met Chang Yi during the rebellion in Vietnam. The commander of the Green Flag Fleet was also a colleague of Chang Yi, but it's unclear if he also fought in Vietnam. The leader of the Black Flag Fleet, known as Kuo Po Tai, was the son of a Tonka family. Kuo had been kidnapped by Cheng Yi as a teenager and subsequently pressed into piracy. Kuo worked his way up the ranks and joined Cheng Yi in his work for the Taizan. Eventually, he was given his own fleet. Kuo was the only pirate leader who was literate, filling his cabin with books. At its height, the Black Fleet had more than 100 junks and 10,000 men sailing under its flags. As the Confederation's principal founder, Cheng Yi and his wife commanded the Red Flag Fleet. The Red Flag Fleet was the Confederation's largest fleet, and whoever commanded it commanded the Confederacy as a whole. At the start, the Red Flag Fleet consisted of 200 junks and 40,000 men. But by 1804, they commanded 400 junks and 70,000 men. And by 1807, more than 600 junks. Cheng Yi strengthened his position at the head of the Confederacy by placing his family members as squadron leaders in the fleets of his lesser commanders. When he ran out of male family members to install in important places, he married his female relatives to men among the other fleets. It's unclear how Cheng Yi and Cheng Yi Sao divided their labors, but soon it will be clear that she knew how to run the whole operation on her own. So most scholars believe that she was pretty involved, perhaps even sharing equally in Cheng Yi's authority. 
Together, the Changs built not only an organization, but a family of sorts. Diane Murray describes it beautifully, quote, In the absence of real family ties, Chang Yi and his colleagues established fictive kinship relations by adopting younger pirates or by presenting female captives to them as brides. Through confederation, the pirates were able to overcome their personal rivalries and cooperate on a scale that had previously been impossible, end quote. Such was the case with another major player in the story, Cheng Pao. Cheng Pao had also been kidnapped by Cheng Yi as a teenager. After a brief homosexual liaison with Cheng Yi, Cheng Pao became his adopted son and quickly rose through the ranks during their fighting in Vietnam. The Taizan called Cheng Pao the Great Generalissimo. Between 1801 and 1807, with his lesser commanders, his wife, and his adopted sons by his sides, Cheng Yi consolidated the Confederacy's dominance in the South China Seas. Murray writes, quote, The small, petty gangs that had once stood at the forefront of pirate organization were now increasingly being superseded. Most newcomers, instead of forming gangs on their own, affiliated with Confederation units. Many were, in fact, actively recruited by Confederation members, end quote. This dominance coincides with the desperate pirate suppression efforts we mentioned earlier in the episode, imposed by Guangdong's Governor General, Bai Ling, and others. Right, so I'm trying to tell both sides of the story from the from the point of view of the on-land people and then the point of view of the pirates. So mm. this is when people on land are starting to freak out because they're becoming the pirates are becoming so effective. Um, right. which is kind of bad news for them because they're being raided all the time and extorted and things like that. Um Chang Yi was not, however, destined to live a long life. On November 16, 1807, Chang Yi died at the age of 42 during a voyage in Vietnam. Some accounts claim he fell overboard in a storm and drowned. Mm. Others assert that he was struck by a cannonball. Ooh. Like two very different things. Wait, maybe he was struck by a cannonball and then <gasps> that would fell make off sense. And drowned. Took him right off the boat. Took, yeah. Took him right off. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, the best evidence we have that Cheng Yi Sao was heavily involved in the running of the Confederation before Cheng Yi's death is this. Not one commander of any of the lesser fleets, many of them highly ambitious men, contested Cheng Isao's assumption of command after her husband's death. This would have been highly unusual in the misogynist society of pirates and, frankly, the even more patriarchal society of China more generally. Chinese pirates, unlike their Caribbean counterparts, tended to live with their entire families, women and children, on their junks. Wives and daughters often took active roles in the family business, though there are few other instances of Chinese women taking command. Cheng Yisao's case is unusual. Scholars argue that in order to overcome the strictures of her gender, Cheng Yisao must have possessed incredible political acumen. For example, she had the political skill and knowledge to navigate her husband's death with mastery. She secured the support of Cheng Yi's closest family members and then worked on indebting all of the other fleet commanders to her so that they owed her their loyalty. Cheng Yi Sao was keenly aware that a lone woman commander would be vulnerable to a coup. So she recruited one of Chang Yi's adopted sons, Chang Pao, to be her lieutenant, managing the Red Flag Fleet. I kind of want us to say lieutenant like we're British. Lieutenant. lieutenant. I say that in my head every time I write the word lieutenant for some reason. Don't know why. <laughs> Too much British television, I guess. Um, Chang Pao was a good choice. He had earned the rank and file's respect and love, but at the same time, his loyalty to Cheng Yisao was unshakable. To secure his support, she initiated a sexual relationship with Cheng Pao mere weeks after her husband's death. They later legitimized their union through marriage. So she essentially seduced him, I guess. Um, Cheng Pao was important, which we'll get to soon, but Cheng Yisao was the incontrovertible boss of the Red Flag Fleet specifically and the Pirate Confederacy as a whole. She sought to impose even more order and to, in some ways, alter the culture of the Confederation. While the hierarchical relationship between each squadron and fleet had been implicit during Cheng Yi's tenure, his wife was the first to structure these hierarchies with the Code of Conduct. 
Um, and I want to say I will refer to her sometimes as Cheng Yi's wife, but that is because that's what Cheng Yi Sao means. Right. And that's literally what she was called. Right. That's not me, like, being an a-hole. <laughs> For example, the pirate's booty was not their own. Upon obtaining booty, Confederacy pirates were mandated to report their plunder for inspection. Pirates were permitted to keep 20% of their booty, and the remainder went to a joint storehouse. When they obtained currency, Confederacy pirates handed it over to the squadron leader, who conveyed it to the fleet commander. A small amount was then kicked back to the original bandit, while a large portion of it was stored in a joint treasury and reserved for purchasing supplies and supplementing other vessels who failed in their missions. Cheng Isao realized that pooling their resources minimized risk so that a few failed missions wouldn't break the bank. Smart lady. Yeah, super smart. Cheng Isao's code was unforgiving. The penalty for pilfering shared resources was death. If pirates were caught issuing orders outside the chain of command or disobeying the orders given them by a superior, they were immediately decapitated. And we were talking on the spot. Yeah, uh, scary. Jeepers. In practice, pilferers from the general fund were sometimes given second chances, but only if their crime was minor. If a pirate withheld a small amount of booty from inspection, for example, some of their booty was withheld and they were whipped viciously. If there was even a whiff of additional funny business, the offender faced certain death. Deserters or pirates who took leave without permission had their ears cut off and were paraded through his squadron to be humiliated. Pirates who raped female captives were also put to death. Under Cheng Yi Sao's rule, women captives were supposed to be released in due time. In practice, the beautiful women were taken as wives or concubines, the ugly ones were released, and the rest were ransomed. I would be released. <laughs> Shut up. No, you would just be one of the normies like me. I, feel like. I would be I would be ransomed, I guess. Like, get out of here, uggo. Pirates were permitted to take any woman as a wife, but once he did, monogamy was the law. Fornication, even among two consenting adults, was punished severely. The male was beheaded and the female was thrown into the sea with weights around her ankles. Good gravy. They did not mess around. I know. Just for boning outside of marriage. Right. That's nuts. crazy. Especially when you think pirates, right? You think right. like it's pirates. Just no holds barred, right? Right. Let's remember this is pirates we're talking about. Right. And rape is punishable by death. Pirates. That's, yeah. That's like what pirates do. Right. You know? Rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. Other common punishments included flogging, irons on the limbs, or quartering. Ugh. Some scholars argue that this law code was actually one of Cheng Pao's invention, but all seem to agree that whoever invented the code, Cheng Yi Sao, was the enforcer. She was the ultimate authority. Murray writes, when she spoke, the pirates obeyed. But you remember Cheng Yi Sao is very wise, right, um, politically. So very acutely, she was aware of the dangers of imposing a legalist society on her organization, right? These are pirates, and, and you can't be too strict with them, right? Cheng Isao used her new husband, Cheng Pao, as a pressure valve of sorts. He kept her strict rules from becoming too much. Cheng Pao was universally loved. He dressed flashily in purple robes and a black turban. He exhibited excellent manners, and he practiced neither the cruelty nor senseless violence that was so common among pirates and their leaders. Cheng Pao appears to have preferred to be loved rather than feared. Cheng Pao was also a spiritual man who provided for the pirates' religious needs. He built a temple on the largest ship, visited temples on land, and rarely raided temples or harassed priests, which is how good of him, right? Very rare, very rarely yeah. did he raid temples or harass priests. But every now and then, every now and then, he met, he did. He just couldn't help it. <laughs> Between 1807 and 1809, Cheng Yisao and Cheng Pao grew the pirate confederacy with business-like shrewdness. For example, in Guangdong, salt was big business. There were 22 salterns scattered around the coast. Cheng Yisao essentially co-opted the imperial salt business, capturing the salt junks and forcing the workers to direct their salt work to the pirates' ends. Over time, salt junk owners realized it was easier to just pay Cheng Yisao a cut of their profits to pay for safe passage. Cheng Yisao developed this practice to the point 
where they were extracting 50 Spanish dollars for every 100 pow of salt. So that's about 55 pounds of salt. So 50 Spanish dollars per 55 pounds of salt every time salt left the coast of Guangdong. Wow. Cheng Yisao and Cheng Pao expanded this racket to other commodities as well. Soon, all junks were shelling out somewhere between 50 and 500 Spanish dollars per trip to ensure safe passage. The pirates' authority even spread to land. They were able to extort money and rice from villagers living in the Pearl River Delta in order to guarantee their protection from Confederacy pirate raids. Wait, so I just want to clarify. So they're, like, extorting money to guarantee their protection from their own raids. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Classic. Right? Like, yeah. nice uh, river delta here. It would be right. a shame if somebody raided it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Cheng Yisao and Cheng Pao established aquatic headquarters throughout the South China Sea, as well as financial offices dotting the coasts where financial officers could collect their fees. They sent agents to Macau to both sell safe passage documents to the fishermen and shippers there and to procure their steady supply of weapons and ammunition. Even more impressive, Cheng Yisao developed intelligence channels on land, making use of each coastal city's underworld. Governor General Liang Kuang exclaimed, On land, the traders exchange news with the pirates and arrest has no effect. Cheng Yisao installed secret pirate agents into the system of civil servants in Guangdong. While Cheng Yisao and Cheng Pao were definitely exploiting Chinese villagers on land, they were careful not to alienate them, as some pirates had. They realized that they needed some of the land population on their side. Who else would sell them their much-needed vittles like rice, gunpowder, and tongue oil, or fence their stolen goods? Right, because if you think about it, like, they're stealing all this stuff, but what are they going to do with it unless someone will buy it from them? Right, right. For cash, or, you know what I mean? Like, they mm-hmm. they have to fence their, the property they steal. This copacetic arrangement with the inland underworld allowed Cheng Yi Sao to arm her fleets robustly. Even under Cheng Yi, the Confederacy had been well-armed. Before marrying his adoptive father's widow, as one does, Cheng Pao commanded a squadron of 36 junks, almost 1,500 men, 200 cannon. Yes, that's more than five cannons per junk. And these are like kind of small boats, so that sounds insane. And 1,300 fouling pieces, hooks, sickles, knives, and shields, basically other weapons. But by 1808, under Cheng Yisao and Cheng Pao, the pirates so controlled the coast that they were able to mount full-scale assaults on land. In parties of 300, they targeted imperial forts and garrisons, those very poorly manned ones that we mentioned earlier, overpowered the troops, and raided the arsenals. Throughout 1808, Cheng Yisao's pirates demonstrated their economic dominance and military might. When a military commander from Chekyang province sailed into the Guangdong on military orders, the pirates murdered him as a show of force. For the rest of the year, they attacked the Imperial Navy's forces, destroying all of the defense vessels protecting Guangdong and 63 of Guangdong's 135 Imperial vessels. The Confederacy's activities reached fever pitch in August 1809. The pirates moved into Guangdong's interior and posted notices of attack around the city of Guangzhou. In September, they launched a multi-pronged frenzy of activity, and in the space of one day, they stole five American schooners, captured the brig of the governor of Timor, and blockaded the river to prevent the passage of a tribute mission from Siam, or Thailand. It was utter chaos for Guangdong officials, and they were understandably in a panic. These events, remembered in history as the Crisis of 1809, forced Guangdong officials to seek aid from the Westerners who they had proudly turned away several times over the course of the prior decade. The Chinese government regarded the Europeans as barbarians, and it wounded their pride immensely to have to turn to them. They arranged to hire the British ship Mercury with 20 cannon and 50 American volunteers. They also agreed to lease six Portuguese men of war to sail with their navy for six months. 
Cheng Isao's pirates continued to do their damage. They captured Western vessels and men, the stories of whom are some of the only documents we have about the pirate confederacy, and brought the opium and tin trades to a standstill. But by early 1810, the pirates began to realize that they were in such a position of power that they could negotiate to surrender to the Guangdong government without punishment or reparations being imposed on them. Guangdong was so desperate to end the scourge of Cheng Isao's pirates that they were ready to legitimize their power in exchange for their retirement, letting them keep their ill-gotten gains without question. On February 21, 1810, the Red Flag Fleet anchored in the Pearl River and met Guangdong officials to negotiate their surrender. These initial negotiations did not go well. The Governor General told Cheng Isao and Cheng Pao they'd need to surrender their vessels and settle on land. A skilled negotiator, Cheng Isao, insisted that they be allowed to keep 80 junks and 5,000 pirates under their command. Talks broke down, and Cheng Isao retreated back to the sea. She and her commanders did not necessarily see eye to eye about how the surrender should go. Nonetheless, she continued with her negotiation. She knew they had the upper hand, so held firm, even elaborating on her proposal, adding 40 salt junks to Cheng Pao's post-surrender personal fleet. With nothing on their side with which to bargain, Guangdong officials gave in to Cheng Isao's demands and negotiated their surrender on her terms. The agreement was made official in April 1810. Arguably, Cheng Isao's most important feat during this negotiation was her success in securing a place for Cheng Pao in the imperial military. Cheng Pao rose to the ranks at breakneck speeds, achieving the rank of colonel in a matter of years. He died in 1822, leaving Cheng Isao to raise their 11-year-old son, and she had two older boys who were fathered by Cheng Yi. She appears to have settled in Guangzhou, where she purportedly ran a gambling den. <laughs> I love this woman. I know, she's outrageous. <laughs> she appears once more in the historical record, briefly, in 1840. Cheng Yi Sao pressed charges against a Guangdong official for embezzlement of a large sum of money given to him by Chang Pao in 1810-ish. All of the authorities involved found it bizarre that she'd waited 30 years to press charges, and eventually the case was dismissed as a trumped-up sort of charge. Cheng Isao died four years later. She was 69 years old. Right, and everybody mentions this lawsuit because there's just so few records about her, so everyone's like, woohoo, we found a record about Cheng Isao, but it doesn't tell us all that much about right it's like it's exciting to find something but you're like well i kind of wish that it had been something that could yeah (laughs) that that meant give us more right it reminds me of the the records that people people like do just insane amounts of research to find any mention of shakespeare Mm -hmm. in records and in documents and they'll be like oh i found his signature but it's on this weird (laughs) you know you know, lawsuit or something that has nothing to do with him. He just happened to be a witness and maybe it wasn't actually him. Right. Yeah. It it doesn't actually advance our knowledge in any way. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just like cool to see, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Since Cheng Isao and her pirates were illiterate, her life story is not very well documented, as you can imagine. It's essentially taken from two primary sources and they are far from unbiased. I don't specialize in Chinese history, so I relied a lot on Diane Murray's careful scholarship about Cheng Isao. Murray wrote an invaluable chapter called Cheng Isao and Fact and Fiction in an edited volume called Bold in Her Britches, which <laughs> I know, which is great, which is so important to understand the facts and fiction surrounding Cheng Isao. The first primary source on which this narrative is based is the history of the pirates who infested the China Sea from 1807 to 1810. Great title. I think the Chinese title is called Qing Haifen Qi. Oh, okay. Written by uh, Yuang Yonglun. Yuan was a Chinese official during the crisis of 1809 and got his information firsthand from those who engaged with the pirates. He was not unbiased, however, because he was traumatized by his colleagues' violent interactions with these pirates. The second is a brief narrative of my captivity and treatment amongst the Ladrones. And the Ladrones, sorry, I keep interrupting you, but Ladrones is um, what the Portuguese called the um, Chinese pirates. Oh, okay. Ladrones. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Uh, th- and this 
was written by Richard Glasspool, an officer of the East India Company ship, the Mar- Marquis. I mean, Marquis? I would have said Marquis of Eli, but um, it's the it's the British. You're right. It's probably insistence that you can't say French right. words. It probably is in, Marquis. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, either way, it's the Marquis or the Marquis, who knows, of Eli, who was held captive by Cheng Isao's pirates from September to December 1809. He prepared this narrative for the East India Company. The English translation of the first and copies of the second have circulated widely within the English-speaking world and served as the basis for almost every story told about Cheng Isao. Historian Diane Murray, however, has studied both accounts extensively as well as the stories that they inspired, and she's found that while the sources corroborate each other, their retellings have been highly embellished and misinterpreted many times over. Right. So the primary sources actually seem, even though they're biased, they seem pretty reliable because they Mm -hmm. corroborate each other and the people, they didn't know each other. So so that seems fairly reliable. Um, but people have misread the heck out of this stuff. So yeah. um, the narratives were written, um, and in the first case, translated, before the Wade-Giles system of transliteration became standard. So Murray has also discovered ways in which Charles Friedrich Newman's translation of Yuan Yunlung's narrative worked to exoticize and sensationalize the Chinese pirate world. She gives the example of Green Squadron leader Wu Chetsing, whose nickname was Tong Hai Pa, which Newman translated as Scourge of the Eastern Sea. Um, so the translation isn't wrong, per se. Tong Hai Pa could be translated that way, but its meaning has been altered by Newman's process of translation. Tong Hai, which means Eastern Sea, was the name of Wu Chetsing's native village. And while the character of Pa can, be, can sometimes mean scourge or fear, in this context, it's more properly transliterated as Ba, which meant uncle, elder, or earl. So Wu Chetsing's nickname was actually Earl of the Eastern Sea Village, which is, of course, much less menacing <laughs> you know, than the scourge, right? Um, but in line with Chinese naming conventions. In South China, people were typically addressed in ways that address their position in the family, their geographic origins, or something about them that stood out and made them recognizable to many people, like a wonky eye or a scar on the cheek. While the process of transliteration makes the work difficult, Murray uncovered what can only be called sloppy work by historians in their discussions of Cheng Yi Pao. Just have to note here that, like, it is surprising how many parallels I think we will see between your episode on Chinese pirates and my episode on Tituba um, of the Salem Witch mm-hmm. Panic. Uh, two things that could not be more different from one another, but like so right. much <laughs> of both of these stories are about like weird translations and weird etymology, like assumptions and basically historians doing bad work. Um, anyway, so. I want to talk about that at the mm-hmm. end, um, but I'll wait. I want you to get through the rest of this first, but I want to talk sure, about sure, why sure. that might be. Um, yeah. So some of that work are is by journalists or pop historians, while others are academic historians who did not check their sources. <laughs> For example, there's the seminal work on piracy by Philip Goss called History of Piracy, published in 1932. While Newman's translation has its errors, Goss compounded these errors by misreading Newman's translation, causing confusion between Cheng Chi and Cheng Yi, and repeated Newman's translation errors. Even worse was Joseph Gollum's Pirates Old and New, published in 1928, which Murray found to be more fiction than fact, not to mention super racist. Super racist. Um. I mean, he he literally just like made stuff up. He was like, oh, she wore a, you know, she looked like this and wore a white, you know, uh, lily in her hair and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like very. And right. Based on his idea of what a Chinese, a beautiful Chinese woman, you know, pirate, piratess. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, The most disappointing handling of Cheng Isao's story is definitely that of Linda Grant DePauw and seafaring women. Grant is a celebrated women's historian from George Washington University. She's retired now. 
She, however, fell Mm. under the spells of Goss and Gollum, reproducing many of their inaccuracies. This includes, but is not limited to, a fabricated story about Cheng Isao's happily ever after, saying that she lived out her days in a palace, raising a bevy of children by Cheng Pao. Um, Grant also mixed up Cheng Yi and Cheng Pao, gave Cheng Yi credit for Cheng Pao's law code, and failed to cite Glasspool's narrative, even though she almost certainly used it, because she used information that was only there. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I would like to think I'm not a perfect historian, but I would like to think that I am more careful than that. And I think that um, this sloppiness seems to be made even worse by the confusion mm-hmm. between the languages, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Which is not an excuse, because if you're studying Chinese history, you have to effing do it right, you know? I'm not I'm not right. even an expert, and I'm trying my hardest to, like, get all the facts right, you know? Um, right. Murray found that Chinese articles were more accurate, serious, and less sensationalized, but in spite of that, or perhaps as a result of that, they focus very little on Chang Isao, and instead focus more on Chang Pao, about whom there's more documentation. There are many fictionalized accounts about Cheng Pao written in Chinese, but none portraying Cheng Yisao. So the Chinese do not write fiction about Cheng Yisao. It's not a thing. In contrast, English language accounts about Cheng Yisao abound, casting her as a Mulan-like woman, warrior, and pirate Mm. queen. And it was very difficult for me to find sources that were not fictionalized. They almost all are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's curious that the Chinese are less interested in Cheng Yisao than Europeans and Americans are. She transformed piracy into an avenue for legitimate success. She had authority, especially authority over men. She operated in open defiance of Confucian norms, refusing to be docile or submissive or chaste. She even transgressed the incest taboo by adopting Chang Pao as a son and then marrying him as a lover. Cheng Yisao's talents were so central to the pirate confederacy that it was incapable of existing without her. Therefore, when she retired after her negotiations with Guangdong officials, South China Sea pirates were rudderless. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that a good one? (laughs) Very clever. And no one was able to save the pirate confederacy in her absence. (laughs) Oh, man. I love puns. So, yeah. So... In some ways, Cheng Yisao was born a typical impoverished girl on the Guangdong coast, right? She was illiterate. She used sex work to make ends meet. She bettered her life through marriage twice. Um, In today's world, many people would argue that as a heroine, she's quite flawed, I think. But I think that's part of why she is so fascinating and why people love talking about her so much, right? She entered history as this illiterate sex worker, possibly from an ethnic group of pariahs. She made history as this kind of brutal pirate queen who grew her criminal enterprise so large that Imperial China was forced to recognize her power as legitimate and her person as beyond reproach. She appears to have used and abused some, exploited others, and treated most others with indifference. Um, if they weren't, if someone was like uh, irrelevant to her goals, she didn't bother with them at all. In a man, these qualities might evoke respect, ambition, and drive. In a woman, it's it's something else, you know. And I don't know if. I, I wouldn't say that she's criticized for these. Most people are like, woohoo, you know, rah, rah. She's a she's a real, you know, feminist or something. Um, but you also have to keep in mind that she did really horrible things and was also a criminal, right? Mm-hmm. So while I fall far short of praising Cheng Yisao at her worst, I do think it's important for us to acknowledge the ethical quandaries that are ignited by our worship of flawed heroes, right? So as we've said many times before, all of our heroes, uh, especially our feminist heroes, I think are flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with Cheng Yisao, it's less, I mean, I would say most women mm-hmm. and most mm-hmm. feminist historians or pop historians or whatever are less um, upset by, you know, her transgressions. Like, 
we probably think that's kind of cool that she was a prostitute and then she's a pirate queen and she seduced her adopted son and like mm-hmm. that's all just and she ran a gambling den right like, that's all yeah that's all part of the color of the story and we think that's really interesting um but it also sort of takes away from her seriousness in a way like right it, it turns her into like this figurehead that was like oh she was this badass boss lady you know yeah, and it takes yeah. away from, you know, the real uh, problems that she overcame and yeah, um, the uh-huh. real sort of cultural and social structures that she transformed. It When you focus on the, the like, sensational parts of the story, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's probably why Chichiba mm-hmm. is, is a similar case is because it's right. it's so easy to sensationalize them. And I think that, honestly, yeah. 20th century feminism this is one of its biggest sins is sensationalizing historical women. Yeah. It's kind of in that way where, you know, there's a a real trade in books about like, you know, those books that are like rebel girl bedtime stories, Mm -hmm. you know, where you've got to like boil it down into like three paragraphs to be read to like a Mm -hmm. seven year old. And so it really, you know, you can, put somebody like um Cheng Isao in there mm-hmm. and just kind of yeah. like emphasize the I don't know the the like you said like the badass bitch part of it um and not fully flesh out the flaws but also not fully give her sort of the seriousness mm-hmm. that she is due for basically being you know a, a like a a business mogul right mhm right Right. And it's that's what is I think bothers me is when historians fall prey to that. Yes. So right. like we should know better. We should know that these people they're complicated people. Like probably if I knew Chengi Sao in real life, I would fucking hate her cuz mm-hmm. she seems like a bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that doesn't mean that she's not important, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so you I the the celebratory part of it is so off-putting to me right um because it it's so black and white Mm -hmm. rather than all of the gradations of gray that history always is yeah you know yeah i think that we'll find um in my episode on tichiba that it's it's a slightly different thing but that i think is is very much at play here as well and that has a lot to do with race Mm -hmm. um and that you know we, we saw how like you know, the the one author who, like, you know, emphasized, like, the lily and Chang Isao's hair or whatever, um, yeah. and sort of writing in their sort of 20th century white man visions and imaginations of what um, this Chinese woman would be like, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially based kind of, I mean, probably no small part on, like, fetishism. Right. Um, that 100%. is more similar to what I think is going on in Tichuba's story, which is where, you know, she's transformed into kind of what the story needs. She's mm-hmm. almost transformed into like a narrative device based on 20th century ideas about enslaved African women and their knowledge of magic, which yeah. is based not at all in the documents, not not even a little so. Right, they become stock characters. Yeah, yeah, based on what we want and what we need and what we think today, rather Mm -hmm. than what the actual sources say. Right, I tried, you know, even though we tried to tell a good story on this podcast, and and I did, I tried to, I tried to tell part of her life as a story, Mm -hmm. but um, I also tried to not do that, you know, tried to not, um, read my own ideas about what she was like into the text. And when I wasn't sure about something, I said that I wasn't sure about something. And, you know, I, we don't know anything about her childhood. So I just explained what, um, those years were like living where she lived and, you know, and, and that's the best we can do, you know? Um, and it, it makes for a less exciting story. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why it's so tempting to, you know, to, (laughs) embellish and fictionalize and things because it it does help make for an interesting narrative 
It's it's right. more tedious when you get into like, well, we don't know this, but this is what we do know. And like, this is this what this dry document, you know, sort of suggests, <laughs> but we can't be yeah. sure. And yeah, right. Exactly. It's it's much less satisfying, I yeah. think. Um, but I am going to try to be satisfied by being a good historian. <laughs> <laughs> it is okay. your job after all. <laughs> it is. It is. I just hope, I hope our listeners, uh, appreciate that. I think they do. I hope so too. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today. Visit us at digpodcast.org. You can find us on Twitter at dig underscore history, and you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash dig history. Oh my God, I always forget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your Patreon dollars are so, so um, helpful to us, and they help us to go to conferences and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Buy buy equipment that keep our lights on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Buy equipment that helps us, you know, sound better. Um, Definitely. And, um, if you don't have a dig shirt or mug or throw pillow or mask <laughs> yet and you want one, you can get one in our merch shop. Um, and uh, T Public often has uh, sales. I think right now at this moment, there's like a 35% off sale. So check that out as well. Right. And you can find links for the, all of that stuff on our website, which is digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Don't raid any junks. Yep. Don't raid the junks. Bye. <laughs> Don't raid the jets. Like a wonky eye. <laughs> a highly educated, disgraced, disgraced. Liam Fu sired seven sons, thereby insiring. Insiring. What the f? Repair relied on the generate. Led. Oh my god. Surrender. About how this surrender. Oh my god. <laughs> Hang on. She and her. Com- okay. She and her. And whomever commanded it. And who do I have to say whomever and published posters compo- composted <clears throat> needed victuals like rice. Wait, it's vittles. God damn it. Would you <laughs> stop know. putting these words in the text? These are these are all these are just pirate words. I don't know what to tell you. Vittles. I f-ing vittles. hate it. Okay. I also f-ing hate it. It's the dumbest word. Who else? Wu's left hand man was Huang Ho. A left-hand man, not right-hand man? Are you no, trying to, like, man. fight back against the right-hand dominance of the world? No, it's supposed to be right-hand man. <laughs> I, I was talking to Noble about left-handedness while writing this, so I don't know. I like it. Um, it's It feels very he, much he like... Const- <laughs> he, well, he watches YouTube all the time, and he always watches, like, these YouTube things. They're like, did you know that 90% of people are right-handed and only 10% of people are left-handed? And he's like, I'm I'm one of the 10%. Like, he tells me, like, several times per day. <laughs> so. Ooh, exciting. The erection of physical barriers and the operation of local militias. Pirates... <laughs> erection. <laughs> erection. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>